This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. Uh, you're listening to a science program now. We've got an hour uh, in the studio with me is Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Good morning. Well, we have 55 minutes. Yes, we do. We're a little short. <laughs> And We're so, going to give them a lot of crap for that. Oh, they are. <laughs> she's she's copping it next week. Uh, Dr. Ailey, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> Not my name for a second there. Well, I knew <laughs> it until... Anyway, yeah. Everything. We're, good, we're morning. All, we're, good morning. Good morning. We're, we're here now. It's all, we're it's good. all good. Dr. Ray? Morning, Dr. Shane. Yes. Uh, now, we're going to run through some quick news because very soon we're going to be calling Carmel Johnson, who's um, been in this amazing NASA experiment up in Sydney. So, we'll give you 10 minutes of news and then we'll jump onto that. Dr. Lauren, we're going to start with you. Yeah, sure. So, I was um, reading about the Amazon on on Friday. So there was a paper published in Science, uh, you know, a little journal we may all know, um, looking at whether or not the Amazon has been domesticated. And it's actually really fascinating because obviously the Amazon is huge. So the size of the Amazon is equivalent to about 93% of North America. So we're talking a huge, huge area and they've only looked at very small amounts of the Amazon. But what they have found by looking at the plant DNA and remains of plants and fossilised samples, all sorts of different ways of looking at what plants are there, is that there's evidence that domestication of the Amazon actually started 8,000 years ago. So they're now saying that um, that there is evidence that the ancient South American people actually were growing fruit trees and nut trees. And the, the evidence for this is obviously that that they're there, uh, but also that they have these um, plantations have been formed around uh, remains, you know, temple remains and, and ancient ruins. Mm. Uh, and what I found really interesting is that the, the study found that there are over 16,000 different tree species in the Amazon, but only about 200 of them are actually really prevalent. So it's 200 species account for half of all of the trees. And of that 200, 80 tree species actually show signs that they were domesticated before Europeans came. So is this is this over the whole Amazon? I mean, that's kind of like a huge area, that, the size of North America. I mean, that's massive. That's so is it, or is it just in pockets that they've they've looked that um, you know tend to have um, you know tribes that used to live there or? or all those kinds of Well, things. that's a really interesting thing because it's such a huge area and they haven't actually looked very much. So they've only really looked in pockets. Mm. So it's quite interesting because in the paper they actually talk about this, you know, whether or not it's just that they've sort of picked the, the spots which are showing these sorts of patterns or whether it might be further spread. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, quite interesting when you think about, you know, that, that, that they were actually, yeah, growing growing yeah. these trees for, for fruit and nuts, which... Yeah, some early it's evidence. Probably a slower transition than the sort of crap we're doing, though, isn't it? I mean, you know, that, that's the thing with some of these that's sort it. of indigenous populations. It was a slower interaction with yeah. the environment than than someone with a very large bulldozer. Well, that's it. I don't yeah. think they were, yeah, knocking down the entire yeah. Amazon to put in a, a nice little farm. But, yeah, yeah, yeah no. Interesting stuff. Yeah, Thank you, Dr. Yes, Lauren. No Dr. Ailey, what do you well, got for us? Well, I've got, I've got some controversial science this week. This is uh, something from the world of geology. Um, and, well, a little bit of astrobiology, actually. I love that, astrobiology. I think yes. it's a great, great topic. But um, I suppose the question is, uh, have scientists unearthed the world's oldest fossils? And this was a story out of uh, the Nature Journal this week, another little yeah. magazine that Swan. most scientists know and love. It's really an agricultural journal. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Popular magazine. Yes, right. So um, this week in Nature, scientists from uh, University College in London have basically uh, said that they have found these things called microfossils. So microfossils, tiny little fossils, basically Mm -hmm. what they are. And basically what they've said is that these microfossils are evidence of life and they have dated these fossils to, get this, 3.77 billion, not million, Mm. billion 
years ago. Yeah. And so this how, is... How old is the Earth? 4.4? Well, 4.4, 4.5, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So these things are, um, yeah, it's pretty amazing that they can date this to this old. And they got it out of this uh, quartz bed that was in northern Quebec in, Ca- in Canada. Mm. Um, and what they said was that these these fossils themselves weren't actually life, like they weren't, that what they were were kind of remnants of life. Mm. And so it was basically early, uh, I think, bacteria that grew and fed on iron, I believe, and left these kind of filaments and tubes. And their their hypothesis is that it's these filaments and tubes uh, that are signs of these bacteria eating this stuff mm. and therefore that's signs of life. But... Controversy hit and when the paper came out, uh, quite a few scientists, um, other geologists have come out and said, well, hang on a second, let's pull back on the reins here because you haven't actually proved that this is life. Um, what you've shown is that it might be um, evidence of life, but quartz, we mm. find stuff in quartz. Quartz is formed under really, really high temperatures. So like 500 degrees plus. It's formed in magma. It's formed when you get, I think, really high pressures causing high temperatures and stuff as well in the Earth's surface. And so what the the people who are kind of saying, well, hang on a second, is that if they're in quartz, surely any organic life that would have been there or remnants of it kind of would have disappeared when the quartz was formed because of these really high temperatures. And so there's a bit of controversy going on. There's a lot of, uh, apparently a lot of kind of hedged statements through the paper. So yeah, we just have to wait and see, I think. I mean, if it does turn out that this is mm. the case, that they are, that they are uh, evidence of life, it, it does imply that life kind of developed super, super quickly on Earth. Mm. And not only that, that life was around at the same time on Earth at the same time that Mars had liquid water as well. Which mm. might be cool. That might be very cool. Because it might be from there. Well, mm. potentially mm. so. Who uh, knows? I was so. about to say, please tell me somebody said alien life at this yeah. point. Uh, <laughs> that's yeah. right. That's right. But anyway, it's a bit controversial. Big news, but let's take it with a grain of salt and see what yeah. uh, other stuff comes I out. I did find it interesting that that was published in Nature. Yeah. Because I think it's one of those things that in, it doesn't exactly bring the journal down, but it does say... The jury can be completely out on this science and we'll still publish it. You know why? Because it's controversial. Yeah. Mm. So are we a hardcore science journal? Or are we a populist journal? Well, that's a, true. You know, I, around this area, yeah, yeah, they no, do a lot sure, of this stuff. For sure. I mean, yeah. a lot of this stuff is controversial, though, with geology and everything because it goes back such a long way. Oh, you can never actually show that it was there unless you've got a time machine, right? Mm, so mm. a lot of it um, That's takes, in a different <laughs> yeah. issue of nature. <laughs> a different issue of nature, exactly. But anyway, interesting stuff. Cool stuff. Dr. Ray, you've got two minutes to go. Dr. Shane, um, <laughs> scientists from Columbia University have been able to store information in DNA and uh, this is actually, I didn't know this was a problem, but we're running out of ways to store data. In the last mm-hmm. two years, we've, pre- we've created more data as a human race than we have in all the time previous. And so data storage densities are a real challenge. And so mm-hmm. people are looking for different methods to archivally store data. Now, DNA, now this is the stuff in Dr. Shane or me, but this is not encoding information in DNA to inject it to make you smarter. It's actually just using DNA molecules with those four nucleic nucleic acids, A, G, T, and C, to actually encode data in a binary fashion. And what these researchers have done is they figured out a way, they call it DNA fountain, to actually encode DNA to about 85% of its theoretical limit. And so they encoded a computer operating system, a movie, an old French movie, other text files, they encoded this all. They wrote it as a text file, sent it to a spin-out company and said, make this DNA for us. Then they sent them a spec back 
and then used a DNA sequencer and then pulled back all the data by just sequencing DNA. And it was something like 72,000 strands of DNA in this little soup. And they didn't have any errors mm. when they pulled the data back. That's kind of cool. That's and, insane. And, and their <laughs> algorithm and system allowed for 72,000 different strands of DNA to be randomly packed together. But the way they encoded the algorithm, because one of them was a computer scientist, allowed them to actually pull it out. Mm. And then they went, oh, I know. It's, it works like DNA sequences. They used polymerase and copied it errorlessly. Mm. So it, it takes a while, but it might be one way to look at archival data. Because we're talking about... Two two 215 petaflops of, in a single gram. So you could put all the data in the world in a couple pickup trucks of DNA. So mm. its density is, is really fat, is, is high. It is a little pricey. So they encoded effectively two megabytes of data and it only costs $7,000 to synthesize and $2,000 to read and, 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 and took a couple weeks. So there's still some work in progress there, but really interesting idea of using Polymers. I mean, that's what DNA is, biochemical polymers, to actually encode information. Mm. It's cool stuff. And I think I said to you when you emailed me this over the weekend that I first heard about this idea about 20, 25 years ago, and it just seemed a long way off. So the fact that, even, yeah. yes, it's expensive, yes, it's, it's, it's a test, but they've actually managed to do it and do it effectively is, is pretty impressive. And that's, you know... Not, not a long way from where we need to be to make it a viable option for storage. Yeah, so... Uh, and. Mm. Leaps, leaps forward there. Cool stuff. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We have magically managed to get our guest on the phone, I think, so I'm just going to see if we can hear her. Carmel Johnson has been part of NASA's amazing um, Mars program of experimentation. Carmel, can you hear us? I can. Can you hear me? We can. Now, um, you're going to have to tell us, first of all, you're, you originated in Montana. Um, and you've been involved in this amazing experiment uh, that basically simulates life on Mars. Tell us a bit about the the program you've you've been in, how long it's gone for, and what some of the mission objectives were. Yeah, so the I was part of the Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation, which is a series of space simulations being held on the Big Island of Hawaii. And I was a part of the fourth mission, and so there were obviously three other missions before me. Two of them were two, four months each. The third was eight months, and mine was that full year. And they're essentially trying to study all of the social and the psychological aspects of isolation, mm-hmm. not necessarily the technical life support systems of living in con- isolation confinement, but they want to know the human aspect of what it's going to take to survive on Mars. Now, now obviously, if, if you're actually traveling to Mars, there would be an extraordinary amount of training that would go on before that. What, what about for this mission? I mean, you said it's a year long, That's and I understand it was a, year, a leap year, so it was extra long. Um, what sort of training did you have to do before you went into this environment? We had a bunch of tests and interviews during the process, but for the most part, they didn't give us a whole lot of training specifically because they wanted to see how we would act when we were put into this new situation. And so they could have given us all the answers about how to solve everything, but they really wanted to test the dynamic of the crew and how we work together more than just our ability to adapt to our surroundings. They wanted to test you know, how we work together. Mm. And tell us a bit about that. Did you? No one tried to kill each other? We did not kill each other, so we were successful in that endeavor for sure. Uh, yeah, we we went out of the end of the year with 
exactly six people, not five, not seven. And yeah, that's really good. <laughs> they, were the, they were the same six you went in with, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking, you know, a year, you can accomplish a lot in, in a year. Um, now, now, tell us a bit about the simulation itself, because I understand they even do things like delay your, your communications back to um, the outside world so that it feels like you're sort of somewhat distant from, from reality. Yeah, so we had no real-time communication, so no Facebook, no Skype, no social media, um, no phone calls or texting, and that's because you wouldn't be able to have that when you actually are on Mars, and so you have to have a delayed email server. That's the way that we would actually be transmitting information to them, and so it would take 20 minutes for our messages to reach Earth and then for the message to come back to us if that person on the other end had actually responded to it immediately. Um, This is Dr. Ray. So... Did you have any activity objectives, things you had to do or, or, or accomplish? It was, it, was it just sitting there day in, day out, or did you have tests you had to run or technical things you had to do to, as if you were on the Mars mission and there were things you had to study, or did you guys just sit and stare at a wall? Oh my gosh, I wish we had just sat and started all. No, um, <laughs> we were very, very busy. We had all sorts of different research tasks going on. We had research that was being done to us, and so they were studying all the things that were going on with us, and we also had our own research projects that we were doing. A lot of it does deal with the social and the psychological aspect of interaction and group dynamics, but we were also doing all sorts of activities outside where we put on our spacesuits and go outside and study the geology and the field component of living in a place where you have to learn about your surroundings. And that was really cool. We were growing plants for research purposes, and we were also filtering water, um, harvesting water out of the rocks outside. We did, oh my gosh, we did so much stuff. It was, you know, we didn't sleep very much, I would say. Carmel, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's Dr. Lauren here. I'm, I'm really interested in the surroundings that you were just talking about. So when you went outside, was it just like being outside normally in Hawaii, or did you, were you in like a bubble where the, the atmosphere had been changed? We were on the slopes of Mauna Loa volcanoes, so we were up at about um, 2,500 meters elevation, and it's very cold up there. It is a very stark, rocky landscape that has no life on it, and so it looks a lot like Mars just Mm. because you're in this place that is only lava rock for as far as you can see, so it definitely feels a lot like Mars when you're out there. They they couldn't obviously adjust the atmosphere conditions or the gravity or anything like that because that would just cost way too much money, but um, the the aspect of being isolated and having to wear a spacesuit, having to be conservative with your resources definitely falls true. And that is, you know, a restriction regardless of if you're actually on Mars or not. Mm-hmm. Now, Carmel, if I was back in sort of the mission control part of this um, this particular experiment, I would spend my day trying to think up weird shit that I could do to you guys <laughs> to test you. I mean, g- give us a couple of examples of things. That, I mean, they must have given you some sort of failure scenarios and so forth while you were in there for the year to see how you responded. What sort of things did they did they do in that regard so the funny thing is that they did nothing to us intentionally because life is chaotic enough (laughs) fall apart on their own and so they didn't plan that our water system would happen to break or that you know the internet would or that we didn't have internet but our email service would like you know just break entirely because that happens in real life and so all these communication issues that they would say oh yeah what if we just you know don't have communications like that's going to happen in real life so they didn't have to plan a thing because life is just chaotic enough as it is. <laughs> do, do you know there's a whole lot of television networks around the world that put a whole lot of freaks 
in sort of jungle locations and then everyone watches them. I mean, why doesn't NASA do that with you guys? <laughs> well, so they had a few cameras in the dome specifically just to see how we were using the space. They weren't watching mm. us Big Brother style because they didn't care about that. They just wanted to know like, oh, how do they use this one space for are we using it for food or for exercise, yada, yada, whatever. Um, but uh, we had all these surveys that we were doing. So they had a really good idea of everything that was going on. They don't have to use video cameras to um, to tell exactly what's going on, but also people act differently when they're on camera than when they're not. Mm. And so they want to see what is the actual you know, interaction going to be if there's no camera. If someone's being watched all the time, then they're going to ham it up and, you know, do whatever. Or maybe they'll be on really good behavior and that would be good too. Mm. I, it's, it's Dr. Ailey here, Come, I'm just really interested. How big was this bubble? Like, I mean, were you guys, did you guys have your own little spaces that you could retreat to? I'm just worried, you, thinking about the, the isolation and that kind of psychological thing about how you, you can't get away from each other. Were you, were you on top of each other all the time or was it, um, you know, could you retreat to areas within the bubble? How big was it? We had um, about 111 square meters, and in that we had a kitchen and a bathroom and a bio lab and a common workout slash kitchen and um, desk space. We, but we, the upstairs of it is two stories. It's a lofted second floor. We had our own bedroom, which is about the size of an under-the-stairs cupboard. And so we each had a wall that separated us from everybody else when we wanted to go to sleep. But it wasn't very soundproof, so we could still hear things that were going on or you could hear every conversation that was happening. But um, at least you had some physical like barriers that could separate you from other people. Mm. Our studio here, Carmel, is about a quarter of the size of what you were stuck in. There are three other people in here with me that I've had in this room for about 25 minutes and they're starting to get on my nerves. I don't know how you handle it. It seems like it's a very long time. I mean, tell us a bit towards the end when you're in the sort of last months and so forth. I mean, what was it like psychologically to have been in that that scenario for so long? Because presumably, you know, if if you're going to Mars, you have the prize at the end, right? You, You get to walk on Mars. But in your case, you didn't have that. So how was it for you? Well, we had the prize of getting to leave at the end. You know, going to Mars is definitely a much longer adventure. And so you wouldn't necessarily have that goal, the ability to come back to Earth, possibly. Um, and so towards the end, the last month of the entire year, we were super busy the whole time. And we were even more busy that last month because we were trying to get everything done before our time was over. And so I don't think we had um, a whole lot of time to sleep or to do fun things that we would have wanted to do. But I think, you know, you do you develop different coping mechanisms. I did a lot of running because that's the thing that helps clear my mind. But I think you develop a kind of twisted sense of humor and you you have to you have to find a humor in the absurdities of life. Just mm. because Otherwise, you're going to be a really stuck-up, unhappy person. So you have to be able to laugh at yourself. You have to be adaptable. You have to be able to just be a generally fun human being, mm. and and then it won't be too bad. Now, now, you turned into a bit of a clean freak, I understand, while you are in there. And has that um, continued since you've left? Um, well, I haven't been as stressed out since I've left as I was in the Dome. Um, I wouldn't say it's a clean freak. It's more that, you know, cleaning is a coping mechanism that I yep. have. And so, no, I haven't been doing excessive amounts of that since I've been out because I haven't been as stressed out. But, um, I mean, I still like things to be tidy. It should it should be presentable for other people. Hmm. 
So uh, I was asking, this is Dr. Ray, I was wondering, now that you're, you're, you're out, when you walk into, say, an apartment or a house that's considerably larger, do you feel uncomfortable or does it really feel disconcerting to be in, say, an actual regular size bedroom now? Or were those first experiences when you came out of the, the dome, were they, did it feel odd or was it just refreshing and kind of, oh, finally? Well, the whole entire dome is actually fairly large. It's really open space feeling. And so it didn't ever feel like we were in this little tiny, or at least to me, it didn't feel like I was being constricted by it because it felt so large in there. Um, and it was really designed well. That was one of the pluses of the, the architecture of it is that they designed that really, really well. Um, I do enjoy large open spaces, particularly if they're not inside of a building. I prefer being outside at any time possible. Um, I think the bigger shocker was, it's not that we forgot what life was like when it was outside because we'd seen it before, but the big thing was taking a long shower afterwards because we were limited to a minute a week for showering. And I remember running the water and being like, oh no, I have to turn it off. And I still feel really, really guilty if I take a shower longer than a, a couple minutes because I'm just like, we're, we're pouring water down the drain. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> especially if you live in California. Now, yeah. uh, Carmel, what's next for you? Because this is obviously, as you said, this is one of many of these sorts of missions that uh, NASA have put together. What's next on the cards for yourself? I am still looking for a job, um, but I'm also considering school and exactly what it is I want to do in the next bit for my career. So I, I don't necessarily have a plan yet, but I'm definitely exploring lots of options. <laughs> and your, your trip to Australia, tell us about that. Uh, so right now I'm on a speaking tour. I'm in Sydney right now, and then I'll be going to Melbourne and Adelaide and Brisbane. And I'm speaking with different groups. I'm giving a couple panels in Adelaide and then speaking with kids in Brisbane. So I'm pretty excited about being here. Yeah, look, it sounds great. We hope you enjoy your time here. Um, thanks for chatting to us. And I think this is, I mean, this is yet another one of these amazing programs where you get to learn a lot about people. And I, I suspect you learned a lot about yourself as well while you're in there. So well done. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, we will um, we will well, we'll keep watch on this, and hopefully, uh, in in within the next decade, we'll be seeing people actually doing this on Mars. I know, for real. Exciting. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much, Carmel. Thank you. Okay, bye bye. It was Carmel Johnson, part of uh, one of NASA's Mars simulation missions, which are, are pretty cool. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio with us is Dr. Bagona Harris, who is an ARC Future Fellow and Group Leader at the La Trobe Institute for Molecular Science at La Trobe University. Bagona, welcome to RRR. Thank you very much for having me. It's Now, you have the most awesome accent. Where, <laughs> where do you originate from? You have to tell me before we start. Yeah, I'm Spanish. Yeah. I moved to Australia many years ago, but I can't get rid of my accent. So don't there get rid go. of your accent. People, people love this accent. It's fantastic. Now, you're working in the area of antibiotic resistance, which is something we hear more and more about. So before we get into your actual work, why don't you just give us a quick rundown of where we are worldwide in terms of this problem? Because it's one that we've been hearing about now for probably two decades, and it doesn't really seem to affect people on the, on the street, but it's becoming bigger and bigger. Yeah, well, I, I, do, I think it does affect people on the street, but perhaps they are not we are not seeing it in the news that often as, mm. as often as we should. Um, if I, see, I guess antibiotics were called the wonder drugs when they were discovered because mm. they really changed medicine, they changed our lifespan, they changed um, our quality of life, I guess. And uh, But 
at the same time, in the, in the last few years, like you said, antibiotic resistance is, seems to be increasing at an exponential rate. And at the same time, we don't seem to have any additional antibiotics in the pipeline to cover for the failing antibiotics. So this is quite scary. And even though it doesn't seem to be on the news or all the time, uh, in recent years, there's been quite a lot of things happening. For example, in 2014, the WHO released a report where they really highlighted that uh, antibiotic resistance is probably one of the main health threats in the 21st century. And basically, if we don't do things continue as they are now, in 2050, it is expected that more people will die from bacterial infections than from mm. cancer, which is quite scary. So, so, so we're talking about going back almost to the pre-antibiotic days. You get a minor cut, that's and you die of the infection, that kind much, of stuff. Yeah, pretty and, much. And you think, you said 20, did I hear 2050? 2050 is when it's, yeah. it's they, they anticipate that that's when it's going to, well, I guess that the, the predictions are by then it will overcome the death rate of cancer wow. from antibacterial, yeah, multi-drug yeah. resistant bacteria or super, drug, super bugs. Recently, there was in the news a lady in, I think in Nevada, that died from a Klebsiella pneumonia that was resistant to all antibiotics. They couldn't kill this bug with anything. Mm. But this is just one case that made the news. But it, uh, there was a recent British report that surveyed all the cases, I guess, of multidrug resistant um, deaths. And they estimated that every year 700,000 people die from over, overall, yeah. worldwide, from multidrug resistant yeah, bacteria. That's not a small number. I that mean, is that's, not that's, a small that's number. That's a large number. So I think I just saw this yesterday. The World Health Organization had just put out a list of top 10 or top 12. Top 12, yeah. Um, either pathogens or particularly bacteria that they desperately want countries to start putting research behind. That's right. So dealing with that. With, with, they also mentioned, and, and this was probably, you know, how it's going to have to happen. They mentioned there's a probably a huge payoff to the pharmaceutical companies that can actually invest and develop this because the need is going to be huge. It is. They, they, they published 12 families of bacteria. They categorize them in high priority or critical priority, high priority, medium priority. And these are based on their, I guess, on how... Um, how many antibiotics you have to kill these pathogens. And uh, yeah, what they want to do is that governments and private sectors use this as a tool as a, uh, to, to, to focus research on these pathogens and develop antibiotics against them because there's nothing really, mm. well, for some certain strains, there's nothing to cover to, to kill this, these bugs. And I guess... Um, Private companies have a reason not to invest in antibiotics. It's not the most profitable um, <laughs> business case, I guess, because we, we take antibiotics for two weeks. They are not very expensive normally to 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 buy them, and and that's it. And and then in all cases, bacteria develop resistance against them. So the life the lifespan of the antibiotics is also limited. So it really is not perhaps the best drug so, that they can develop. So so let, let's cut to the core of this in terms of the problem because all the time the consumers hear about um, the fact that people are using them when they probably shouldn't. You know, people go to the doctors with a virus yeah. and they come home with antibiotics and, and all this sort of thing. And I think there's some loose understanding of what resistance actually means. In, a, in addition to that, though, there is widespread use in agriculture yeah. and farming. I mean, from your perspective, where is where is this problem occurring? Is, is it all of it causing the problem or is it, you know, is it 1% us and 99% agriculture and farming? Where, where's the split? I, I'm not a bacteriologist. Mm. I'm a structural biologist and a biochemist. I'm, I just happen to be working on bacterial yeah, yeah. proteins. Yeah. But certainly uh, misuse in human misuse is, is one example of, of why we are developing resistance. But... Um, 
a lot of the problem comes from agricultural use, mm. using using uh, antibiotics in fish farming and normal farms in my country, for example. That's a big example where where mm. antibiotics are kind of widely used as a prophylactic almost to prevent infections right. but yeah. then we create multi-drug resistant strains and then in our food chain it, it's we there. intake yeah. this, yeah. this resistance so um mm. so it's a bit of everything so it's a bit of everything so the challenge getting back to i think probably more of what, what you're doing is you mentioned it's really hard to develop new antibiotics and then you have to after you develop one it'll become resistant to another so you need to understand there must be a gap in the science we understand about how the drugs somehow have some type of structure function relationship with how they interact with bacteria. Yeah, that's, I guess, why where we come in. Um, uh, what I said is it's hard to develop. Um, um, what I'm saying is hard to develop antibiotics that do not um, cause resistance. So it has been it, the reality is that, that as soon as you develop an antibiotic, it will develop resistance. But now there are new approaches, new views of how you can develop antibiotics that the current antibiotics, what they do is they kill the pathogen mm. and they, but they kill everything. So they put selective pressure so that if something doesn't, is not affected by, by this, by this particular molecule, they develop and they overcome the rest of the population. So they, we are basically encouraging or promoting bacterial resistance by using these antibiotics, which is, we need to use them. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I guess in, um, understanding how we use efficiently these antibiotics or also developing new approaches, new views of how we can tackle bacteria. And that's where we come in. We are working on medically important bacteria like E. coli, which would be one of the top um, critical priority in the WHO. Uh, list and what we are trying to do is see whether we can come up with new approaches one of the approaches that is currently being pursued i guess is is developing antivirulence uh antibiotics or antibacterials which tackle virulence but not viability or survival of bacteria so in my group in my lab what we do is we focus on different types of virulence factors and virulence factors we need to think of them as 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 the weaponry bacteria use to cause disease mm. they can be toxins they can be additions so bacteria is surrounded by, by a sticky proteins on the surface that they use to bind to host cells or surfaces and cause disease um or secretion systems many virulence factors so what we are trying to do is see if we understand how bacteria are making us sick and see we can tackle these particular virulence factors, not killing the pathogen, mm. but making them non-virulent. So, so you remain you remain a carrier, but you, you're not symptomatic. That, that That's the outcome there. Yeah, basically your immune system got clear up. Oh, mm. some, the, this is a bit, still is a bit, well, to be honest, anti, anti-virulence agents have been used. Antitoxins are, are currently being used in, for mm. certain mass, uh, diseases, but not in general to... to to tackle bacterial infections. This is just another approach that we mm. can use in combination with or alone. That's, yeah. that's it, it, it's always bothered me that um, we, we don't, we've found every antibiotic that we, you know, we dug it up or it's been in the coral reef or whatever. We, we've never actually designed one, have we? I mean, we have we ever, have we? ever designed an antibiotic? I think it's, most of them come from natural sources yeah. or modifications of, of the mm. antibiotics that are currently there. Um, the idea being that bacteria is already, <laughs> I guess, uh, fighting with each other. So yeah, that's yeah, yeah. what we've been exploiting, um, yeah. antibiotics from soil sources or whatever. And what we are, and in the last, I think, 50 years, there's only been two new antibiotics um, 
in, um, in the clinic that yep. have come arrived to uh, reach the clinic. So what we are trying to do now is using a more like structure-based approach. So we look at uh, these proteins that are, we look at the structure. So what we do is we use x-rays to see it's, it's almost like a magnifying glass to mm -hmm. make to see the how these proteins these virulence proteins look like and then we try to understand how they function and once we know that we develop inhibitors for example mm -hmm. we are using we have we are working on the surface proteins that are um are involved in in making uh, in, uh binding to surface bacteria to surfaces or by making biofilms Biofilms, it's a main problem. It's bacterial communities that are extremely resistant. They can bind everything. They can bind tissues, human, plant, animal tissues. They can bind plastic, medical devices, mm -hmm. everything. They are main source of infections. And autotransporters are one of the proteins we are working with, which are called autotransporters, are one of the, one of the properties that bacteria use to make these biofilms. So we are, what we do is we look at what these autotransporters look like in three dimensions, like we, almost like a, using a magnifying glass, but it's X-rays and the Australian synchrotron. And then we see how they function. And now we are currently developing inhibitors that prevent biofilm formation from E. coli, for example, which is a gut and a urinary tract infect, infection um, pathogen. So... Mm. Well, it, it's it's something. That 2050 sounds like a long way away, but it's not. It's and really more not. importantly, that's when it really hits the fan. Uh, we need to do stuff a long time before 2050. Definitely. But going to thanks so much for chatting to us, oh, and good luck you. with the work out there. I mean, obviously, we're all going to be. I was going to say affected, but it sounds a lot like infected. Um, <laughs> it's, <Aww>. it's, <laughs> it's Sunday morning. Come on. Um, but yeah, it, this this is important stuff. So it's great to hear that one of the the fine universities here in in Melbourne is on this as well. Thanks for being part of Triple R. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Begona Harris is an ARC Future Fellow and Group Leader at the La Trobe Institute for Molecular Science. Uh, actually, they have sent us many good guests over the last couple of years. Big thank you to them from La Trobe University. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. Now, in the studio, we have Amelia Formby with us. She is uh, soon to go on an adventure, hopefully, from Australia to Siberia in a microlight. Amelia, welcome to 3RRR. Hi, Shane. Thanks for having me here. I'm really excited to be on the show. Look, it's great to have you in that. Um, our, our good colleague, uh, Jenny, recommended getting you in. And, and when I saw what... We didn't have time today. So it's, it's great that we got you in here because uh, when I saw what you were doing, I was thinking it's partially crazy, partially fantastic. Um, <laughs> That's a good description. Yeah. So before we get to this whole flight, um, tell us a bit about um, the awareness you're trying to bring us yes. to migratory bird species and what's happening to yeah. them. So give us a quick rundown on what's going on there. Okay. So... Um, there's a group of birds that visit Australia, migratory shorebirds. Uh, we also call them waders. They're um, birds that live mostly in wetland tidal uh, mudflat areas. And, um, yeah, they, they wade, you know, in the water mm. and feed on those areas. And um, they're going extinct. Many of the species are going extinct. There's 55 shorebird species in Australia and about 37 are migratory. It means they fly to the Arctic tundra every year and breed in uh, uh, Siberia and fly back again and spend their time in Australia in the non-breeding season. And on that journey, you can imagine, you know, flying a 25,000 kilometre round trip, you're going to have to stop and feed along the way and mm. refuel. And a lot of the areas where they stop to feed are being reclaimed for industry, for agriculture, that sort of thing. And they've got nowhere 
to go and refuel on, on the way. So uh, the numbers we're seeing of the populations of those species are declining quite rapidly. And yeah. that's what I really want to raise awareness of. So, so now I can imagine too, in addition to the fact that, you know, I used, I used to land here and it was this lush forest and now yeah. some, some pigs got a coal mine there or whatever. <laughs> um, there, there must also be elements, and Dr Ailey can jump in here if she's got thoughts, but around the climate and the wind pattern shifting has that started to affect some of these birds as well? Because presumably they 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 move based on temperature and 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 weather patterns. Yes, we um, we know that cli- well. We suspect that climate change is having an impact on these species as well. But actually, research on these birds only started. It's, it's relatively new what mm, we know. Okay. So there's many questions that are unanswered, and um, those are definitely some of the questions that we'd like to answer. You know, what kind of uh, weather conditions are impacting when these birds decide to travel and where they decide to go. So part of uh, the Wing Threads project that I'm doing is a research project and those are some of the questions we'd like to answer and fitting out the microlight that I'm going to fly with uh, instruments that can measure things like wind speed and altitude that the birds are flying at and stuff would be part of that. Now let's talk about this crazy because <laughs> um, microlight people for, you know, if you don't know is what I would refer to as a kite with a lawnmower. That's a pretty good description, yeah. Well, a hang glider with a lawnmower. Yeah, hang glider yeah, yeah. with a lawnmower. So it's pretty small. So, so tell us about small. the, I mean, the trip you're taking is not insignificant. I mean, if, if, No, not at all. So Siberia mm. is, yeah, it's a fair way away, right? Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. So, <laughs> so tell us why, why, well, tell us about the path and why you're taking the path and, and why it's not on a 747. Okay. <laughs> well, um, the migration path of the shorebirds um, is what I want to follow, which mm-hmm. is um, I'm going to, f- I've split it up into two flights because the only reason I started learning to fly last year is so I can actually do this particular project. So I've given myself a a decent time frame to actually build up the skills and the networks that I'm going to need to be able to achieve this. So I'm planning two flights. The first one is a cross-country flight in Australia at the start of 2019, Mm -hmm. and that's from Melbourne to Broome, and I want to arrive in Broome just before the waders leave on their northward migration, which is around the end of March. The second flight is uh, planned for the start of 2022, and that will be from Broome up to Siberia following the northward migration of the shorebirds. Um, I've chosen to do it in a microlight because um, there's a lot of parallels, I think, between a microlight and the shorebirds themselves. I chose the redneck stint, which is the smallest species of mm-hmm. all the shorebirds as my flagship species. Um, it's the smallest of all the shorebirds. It's, it only weighs about the size of a Tim Tam. Right. So a little Tim Tam bird, you know, you can imagine this little tiny bird, you know, flying 25,000 kilometres and back. And, and we know some of these birds are about 30 years old. So they've flown the equivalent distance of to the moon and back within yeah, their yeah. lifetime. I just find that mind-boggling. So it's about, what, 40 or 50 grams or something, is it? Uh, must not, be, even. not even. It's there. between 20 and 30 grams. Wow. Tiny birds. Yeah, it's been the since I've held a Tim Tam. Yeah. <laughs> Getting older. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's the smallest shorebird species and then the microlight's like the sh- smallest of the aircraft and also, you know, I'm going to be exposed to the elements just like the shorebirds are. The microlight travels at not too too much, not a li- about the same speed as the birds do, a little bit faster, but they're still going to be outstripping me by a mile um, mm. in my aircraft because uh, they can fly, you know, 3,200 kilometres in one go if they want to, the stints, I mean, not, um, other shorebirds can fly further. So how, um, long will, how long will it take you in your mm, microline? 
um, to do the international mm, flight, yeah, you mean? Yeah. Uh, it'll probably take around three months. Three months? Yeah, okay. and it's going to be weather dependent. What I'd like to do is stop at the key shorebird sites along the way yep. and um, make a documentary film. So it's really going to be about highlighting uh, not just the story of the shorebirds themselves, but also the people that work with shorebirds and the communities that live alongside them. Because I see the... Um, the shorebird migration path is like a thread that links everybody together living along the flyway. And to conserve these birds, it really requires international cooperation and bringing mm. people together. Mm. And I think that's really the basis of good conservation yeah. is, um, is is people. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. It's fantastic. Now, you're trying to um, get some money to help with this. So yeah. tell us quickly about that before we go. Okay. I've just launched a crowdfunding campaign on Chuffed. Um, you can go to www. Chuff.org forward slash project forward slash wing threads and you can donate to the campaign there. Um, there's lots of cool incentives there. For the first week only, we're letting people uh, name the plane, suggest your own name for the aircraft. That's what we're trying to raise funds for because I'm at this point in my project where um, I can't continue to train for this flight without my own aircraft because uh, people aren't really keen to hire out a microlight uh, yeah, for yeah. some crazy lady flying solo to Siberia. So, <laughs> um, yeah, 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 I need I need my own set of wings. That sounds good. Well, yeah. look, we're, we're out of time, but just remember if it ends up being called Plainy McPlainface, yes. Dr. Warren here. I'm all yeah. for Plainy McPlainface. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're outraged about Bodie McBoatface not happening, go to, go to wingthreads.com. <laughs> sounds good. Amelia, for me, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us and good luck with this. It's great to hear that you've also got the support of the University of Western Australia, the Recreational Aviation Australia Group and BirdLife Australia. So yes, hopefully this yes. will be a success. Thanks Thank for chatting to Thank you so much, us. Shane. Thanks for having me. All right. We've not got long. Hey, I did want to mention though that um, there's a couple of, in 2018, folks, there'll be a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months where I'll be away because the, the Dragon Space Group, are, you know, they're, they're sending two people around the moon to civilians. Yeah. And obviously <laughs> I'll be one of them. <laughs> sure. <laughs> there won't my, be a selection <laughs> process that you might not get through there. I'm, I'm hoping it's got a low bar. So, <laughs> and they, you know, the closer you are to the bar, you never know. Um, look, we've had a full show though. And, um, Dr. Ailey, thanks so much. Thank you, Dr. Hopefully Shane. Hopefully see you again. Yeah, hopefully one or two more shows. A couple we'll more see. shows. Um, Dr. Lauren, good to hope you get some sleep. Yes, I think I'm planning to as well. Yeah, yeah, I know you've been suffering. And Dr. Ray, great to have you in. Good to see you, Dr. Shane. I think we'll see each other again very soon. Remember, science is everywhere and uh, be nice to each other, folks. It helps sometimes. It never hurts. You're listening to 3RRR. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.